0: sports, staff to, to clear the room. Stand up and walk.
1: Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor from TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, it's Andy Greenwald.
0: What a show. What, what a, a show, show for We've us got for
1: people today. We said it was going to be a special episode. It's a special episode. Coming up next on The Watch, a nearly hour-long conversation with Ethan Hawke. To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See mintmobile for more
2: details. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise. But if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at vioricom Simmons. Once again, v slash Simmons.
1: All right, Andy, we're about to get into our Wonderful, wonderful chat with Ethan Hawke, the star, the executive producer, the co-writer, the co-creator of Good Lord Bird, which is on Showtime. Ethan Hawke is nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Limited Series for Good Lord Bird. If people haven't checked it out, they definitely, definitely should. It's a, it's just an amazing piece of work. He was really nice enough to give us almost an hour of his time, and we talked some about Good Lord Bird, and then everything, everything else.
0: Yeah, I you know what they say, Chris. They say, never invite your heroes onto your podcast. I say, throw that Maxim in the garbage. Always invite your heroes on your podcast. What a treat, what a delight to talk to a guy who is very comfortable talking about the acting uh, preparation and performance of Denzel Washington and also the time St. Francis asked for his own uh, order within the Christian church. And before we get into it, I do want to say both of us talked about Good Lord Bird when it started last year. Mm -hmm. And I think both of us have admitted that we drifted from it. Um, Mm -hmm. Sam Esmail came onto our podcast, said it was one of the best of the year since then. And of course, in preparation for this interview, we both revisited it, finished it. I'd like to say I'm sorry (laughs) that I didn't finish it last year. Um, My bad, our bad. It is really a remarkable show that only... uh, improves and grows and deepens when you get to the end. I think the last two episodes in particular are last, The last episode might be,
1: is up there with like the two or three best things that were on TV last year.
0: Without question. Yeah. And it's really fun then to be able to have this opportunity to take what we got from a show like that and the creative chances it took and the excitement that we that we found in it and that it's so palpable in it and then just clearly connect it to the project's beating heart and see that it came from this guy who we love to talk about. And uh, now we love to talk to him, too. And yes, we did ask about Moon Knight.
1: Yes. Now, Andy and I have PTSD from uh, interviewing lots of bands over the course of our life. And one thing you find out is that you think way differently about music than the people who make music think about it. So you'll ask them a question, and then they'll be like, huh, yeah, no, I just kind of like let it happen. That's not the case with Ethan Hawke. <laughs> like, it's really awesome to talk to somebody who obviously... Th- is really thoughtful about their career in the same way that someone who is a fan of their career is. And um he was really generous with his time. So without further ado, let's get into oh. our
0: Oh, and in the beginning his dogs were there too. That's who we're yeah. talking about. It's not children because I think we're very like, oh, who's there with you? And he's like, these are just some people. It, those were dogs. Yes. Just so everybody knows. First dogs ever on the watch.
1: <laughs> First perform dogs. All right. We're gonna get into our talk with Ethan Hawk right now.
3: Yeah, I was a Knicks fan. And um but I live in Brooklyn, and they built Barclays Center, and Jay-Z got this sweet look going <laughs> with the uniforms, and you know, I secretly love Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett, and so when when they came over the, that first year at Barclays Center, it was pretty exciting, and I, I decided to get on the bandwagon and, and switch hats. It's rare you see a Yankee fan turn into a Mets fan or a Knicks fan into a Nets, but I grew up in Jersey and often thought about being a Nets fan. You, man. you I, got
1: it. You've, you've got the credibility. That's yeah, like I,
3: I love Vince Carter and Jason Kidd. And I, I had high hopes. And now that Durant is here, it seems like the right time to represent
1: you were a pretty iconic Madison Square garden goer, though. Like there's some yeah. there's some pretty amazing Getty photos of you hanging out courtside at, at the garden.
3: <laughs> yeah, there's some pretty ridiculous ones.
1: <laughs> there's like you and Rihanna, right? Like you're just hanging out, just well, like taking in a
3: game. The one that comes up the most often on the Internet is is one where. At the first half, my son is sitting next to Rihanna in the second half, <laughs> I switch seats with my son. And so people like to make fun of me for that. But I ask you, why not? Who's among us? Who's among us? Listen, Ted
0: Cruz is using his children poorly. You (laughs) did what you had to do. There is a clear difference. Yes, thank
3: you. Thank you. And nobody likes to say this, but I had my son's full support. That's right. Of course. That's right. <laughs> he was 11. I mean, you know, he was so excited to be at the game. I mean, you know, he didn't care who he sat next to.
0: <laughs> or who his new stepmom might be. It was fun. Yeah, yeah, there right. you go. Exactly. You know?
1: <laughs> um, well, we'll just get into it. Ethan Hawke is joining us on The Watch right now. He is one of me and Andy's favorite actors. In a lot of ways, I feel like Andy and I have grown up watching Ethan Hawke grow up. So this is kind of a trip to be talking to you right now. And we're talking largely about one of the best shows of last year, Good Lord Bird, which... It's just an astonishing piece of work. Um, and Ethan, thank you so much for joining us on the
3: pod today, man. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here, guys.
1: So I have a first question, which came up out of some research that I was doing. With, which he doesn't a, do that
3: for everyone. I'm I don't sorry do it, to it for everybody. It, but, but there was
1: a, a story from about 2015 where I think somebody from Vulture maybe uh, got you at like a, an after party for a Broadway play and asked you about a TV show you were supposed to be on called Exit Strategy. And this was a, a Fox series that had been ordered like back about five, six years ago now. And it was getting retooled. And you were just kind of like, I don't know, man. TV is a mystery to me. Like, and you just seemed kind of disillusioned with it. That show never never
3: aired, I don't think, right? Oh, uh, no, no, no. What well, what I got, no, I've never been well, you did some good research. I've never <laughs> been asked about that show. That show kind of represented my midlife crisis, you know, (laughs) uh, I was 40 years old. My wife was pregnant with child number four. There was a financial, you know, it was like, it was the years following 2008. And you have to understand when dead poets society came out, I was 18 years old. I got paid $27,000, something like that. And I was the richest person I'd ever met. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, so I, i I had as far as I was concerned, I had the world world by the balls, you know, and I was having fun. And all of a sudden here I was 40, really worried about money and really worried about my future. And the whole reason why I'd gotten into acting, you know, to be a dramatic actor was slowly being phased out. I mean, meaning that studios weren't making dramas, the the things that had been my dream, you know, before sunrise, uh, Gattaca, uh, Training Day, uh, mainstream dramas made by studios—it just wasn't happening anymore. So those jobs, a, I'm turning forty, so they're not as many anyway, and b, the, the jobs themselves are drying up, and everybody's saying to me that TV's the future. You know, you keep hearing that TV, everything's TV. It's the golden age of TV. That's where the writers are, and I. I temporarily had this thought, well, like, all right, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe I got to change. Maybe I've got to change my dream. And Antoine Fuqua is my friend. He had directed me in Training Day and he had directed Brooklyn's Finest, two of my favorite experiences making movies. I love both of those. It, and he's just a great director. And we got approached to do this, you know, like, in my mind's eye, it was going to be, some badass American James Bond kind of thing, you know? And, and, and I thought, well, if it was a big hit, maybe I could control it and turn it into something kind of interesting and I could cast my friends and Antoine was there and we were going to make it cool. And it's really hard to make good television. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, like, you know, sometimes you flip through the channels and you're like, why is all this shit so bad? It is, there's a great, kind of gravitational pull to mediocrity. I mean, it's just, everybody's, they, they want you to do something that they know for sure is gonna make money, right? And if you know for sure it's gonna make money, it means somebody already did that and made money off of it. So you're just gonna imitate them. And what people always forget is that it was usually the originality of the show that made it remarkable. So as soon as you're imitating it, whether, you know, people were trying to imitate 24. I, don't, I forget all the shows they wanted to be the new something, right? Sure. And my mother always told this to me, and this is embarrassing to talk about the advice you get for your, from your mother, but every time I try to sell out, I fall on my ass. I mean, I, if I try to follow my heart, good things seem to happen. You know, everybody in my life told me not to do before sunrise, and it turned out to be one of the best experiences of my life, you know, working with Richard Linkletter and establishing that friendship. And that was not something people were advocating for me to do at that moment in my career. And that goes well when I try to, like. Be a popcorn superstar, I'd make something <laughs> terrible. It's somehow not in my nature. So I tried my best to make a hit TV show. Nobody in the world liked it. And this is, I'll get to the point, you know, we, it was an, I mean, Antoine Fuqua is a big hotshot director and, and he did a great job and I'm supposed to be in it and I've never done television. And I guess it just was neither fish nor fowl. Mm-hmm. You know, it it wasn't, cinematic enough for Antoine and I, and it wasn't television enough for the people making it. And I think they just cut us from the team, you know? Yeah. And I remember I got the call, it was one of those like bad news calls from the producers. Like, I don't think they're picking up the pilot. And my wife and I were looking at each other like, yes! <laughs> and, and it, it kind of rebooted and revitalized the next 10 years of my life, to be honest. I I was so relieved to be let out of that contract and be I really feel like um, it was fear that was driving me at that moment. and I have a wonderful partner in my wife and she's like, listen, you don't need to get a job and be miserable like everybody else. like, like so we go broke. big deal let's let's have fun. we're gonna be dead soon. What do, <laughs> what do you want to do? like let's do that. And so I started throwing myself at projects that I loved. And I I really started working about twice as hard. I've spent the last decade working so much. And I just decided that if they weren't going to be making dramas anymore, I'd keep making them. And if I wasn't going to get paid, I wasn't going to get paid. And and I was going to try to go down swinging with what I loved. And ironically, my real first go at television turned into one of my favorite things I've ever done in my life. You know, I mean, The Good Lord Bird is means the world to me. It's been some of the greatest collaborations I've ever experienced and subject matter that is unendingly interesting and important to me. And so it all kind of fell into place. Well, that's
0: a perfect segue because I I really respond to what you're saying, Ethan, this idea that like, even if you, try the everyone has the best intentions when they get into something but the the slide towards mediocrity or towards safety is really really tough it's gravity and it pulls everybody whether you're aware of it or not and i'm just curious how you then had that muscle memory going into something like the good lord bird which takes some wild swings and it's what we admire it for you know from the very first episode from the Typeface, you know, for every little piece of production design you put into it to those remarkable shifts in storytelling and I'll say the word again, tone that really made it such a special piece.
3: You know, it was one of those go big or go home moments. You know, I, I remember when I did the first scene, a lot of people just, when you tell them you're making a movie about John Brown, they get this very pious, important look on their face like, oh, we're talking about race in America. We must be serious. And we're doing something quote unquote important. And the trouble with that kind of body language and behavior is they're secretly telegraphing that it's not something they really want to see. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be interesting. And the genius of James McBride is he's talking about some of the nation's greatest hurts and greatest wounds, but he's doing it with so much humor and so much love and, and so much incendiary ideas. I mean, you know, no sooner have I, you know, rescued this young man that I shot his father and I put him in a dress. I mean, it's just <laughs> idiotic, right? Yeah. And I remember when I first started doing this, some of the people that weren't deeply familiar with the material were like, is he really going to keep acting like that the whole time? You know, you hear whispers behind you at the dressing room and the bathroom. And I, I felt... I'm 50 years old now and I was just gonna go for it. You know, that I I had McBride's trust, he believed in me and I knew in my heart that I'd love this material. And usually if you love it, there are like-minded people out there. And I just knew we had to protect what we loved about it. You know, because like you said, the, the weird thing about that gravitational pull is it affects every little decision. Every casting decision. Well, are we sure we have to put him in a dress? You know, are we sure? um, Oh, we don't want to do that. Well, uh, that might anger these people. You're like, look, they're going to get mad. Some people are going to get mad. It's okay. They're allowed to get mad. That's part of our job as storytellers.
0: Were there any Mean Girls-like moments where you were in a bathroom stall and two people came in and were talking at the sinks about your performance (laughs) and you just unleashed the John Brown voice on them? Because
3: that would work. So many. And you know what's, what's, what's fun about being an actor and slash terrible about being an actor <laughs> is you kind of, oh, if you're playing somebody really depressed, right? You start teaching your body depression. You start reciting these words. You're trying to believe these thoughts. And oh, if you're playing somebody violent, you start teaching your body a violent reaction. And you know, I would be on camera all day shouting at people. Right, that's my character. Right, I'm shouting at everybody. Do this, do that, and then you know they'd say cut, and I'd have my meeting with Showtime, and I'd start shouting at all of them. I was wondering about that. Doing that, you know. (laughs) You take (laughs) it to Craft Services,
1: you're like,
0: no peanut M and (laughs) M's,
3: exactly.
1: (laughs)
0: Where's the vegetarian lasagna?
3: (laughs) Gets results. Gets results. People respond.
1: But you could just say that that's uh, method acting. That's, you're not being a tyrant. You're just staying in character.
3: You know, the thing about method acting that's kind of confusing is that what people think it's some kind of deliberate idea of staying in character. And, and the thing about what Strasberg and Kazan and everybody was doing back in the 50s when this whole method idea started is it's about the imagination and inviting your personal self to your imagination, so letting the character and yourself intersect, right? And and if there's obstacles to that imagination, you know, if Daniel Day-Lewis wants to live in a woodshed, it's not that he doesn't know his name is Daniel Day-Lewis and he's playing Abraham Lincoln, it's that he's trying to fill out the imaginative life of what it would be like. Because you never know what that little detail is gonna be that's gonna unlock the character for the audience. And so what happens is it, it gets into your bloodstream. It's not a deliberate thing. It's 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 a creative process and it starts, it's a little shamanistic in a way. It You don't mean to be yelling at the craft service guy in character. It just starts to happen. Yeah. Um, and it, it, on a way you could call it madness. In another way, it is controlled madness. You're inviting it into your life. Um, and the trick is figuring out how to get out of character, right? Right, you
1: know, I one of the things thematically that really interested me about Good Lord Bird is the fact that it's both a, a coming of age story for Onion, but in a lot of ways it's a, it's a coming of age story for the for the country, you know, and it's it's about this kind of moment of real, well, almost a pre moment of volcanic change, you know, it's it's the it's the canary in the coal mine in some respects, but I know that a lot of people very closely associate you with coming of age work, you know, whether it's something like Dead Poets or it's something like Boyhood where you're on the other side of that. But I was wondering if whether or not that theme resonated for you when you read the McBride book and when you were starting to plan out the, the series where that was something that you guys were consciously thinking about.
2: It
3: was, I mean, you, you wouldn't think this quickly, but even Training Day in a lot of ways is a coming of age story. You know, and I I saw a lot of Jake in Onion, so to speak. I mean, one of the things about when I was playing Jake in Training Days. Yeah, when you walk out of the movie, you talk about Alonzo, you talk about Denzel's performance, but it's Jake's story. You know, I mean, it starts with Jake. There are scenes that Alonzo is not in, that Jake is in. It ends with Jake and it's his he's the character who changes and he's the uh, the witness role in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, you, you, you know, and, and it, as you said, it's, it's the the person who is coming out. And I knew for Joshua who was playing onion, that this was his movie that we would go as far as he would take us. And that, yeah, in a lot of ways, uh, John Brown is the elephant in the room, so to speak. I mean, he makes the most noise, uh, but it's Joshua's story. And you know, the ending of for those people who've seen it, the ending of the show is it doesn't really give much away. But, you know, he's riding away into the sunset like an old fashioned Western. You know, I mean, I really saw it as a, a retelling of the Western. A lot of the Westerns we all grew up on don't address the main issue of that time period is that, you know, this land was being stolen from an Aboriginal people who inhabited it. It was being worked over by people brought here at gunpoint, um, you know, and it just ignores these major stories. and And the story of Onion is a beautiful way to kind of retell a Western and have the focus be on what was really happening.
0: The idea of, of changing the camera where where it's pointed in a story like this is so crucial to the work. And it and one of the things that I was most struck by um, about the show as a whole, but also specific choices you made in your performance, was kind of this idea, and this is a modern term, this is not obviously in the show, but this idea of kind of heroic allyship, right, which is a very modern way of phrasing things. But as we see through The Good Lord Bird, Brown was so fanatical about his cause, he sort of ran roughshod over a good sense at times, over his own family, and um, sometimes, and I think you depict this really wonderfully, over the very voices of the people he's trying to help, you mm-hmm. know, and I thought that of, of all the many themes at play here, I thought that was one of the most striking and, and, and relevant, you know, particularly for f- living in a world where three people who look like the three of us are <laughs> yeah, trying right. to be um, yeah. productive We want to partners. the right side
3: of history now. Whatever that is, yeah. we want to not be a part of the problem. We want to be part of the solution. One of the things that, uh, I had a really amazing experience in the Bill Maher show. This is, I was doing press for First Reformed and I was on the Bill Maher show with Killer Mike, rapper from Atlanta and- And, uh,
0: and your co-star.
3: And my co-star, well, we, we struck up a conversation there and I was telling him that, you know, one of my passions was trying to get the good Lord Bird made. And he shook my hand and said, listen, if you ever get that made, I have to be in it. John Brown's one of my heroes. And if anybody's interested, Killer Mike has a lot to say about the warm, benevolent face of white allyship, which allows for crimes to continually happen, that we all mean well, but don't do anything about it. And the thing about John Brown is he kind of took it a step further. And he said, I'm not gonna be your ally. I'm gonna be your co-conspirator. I'm, gonna, I'm not just gonna like smile from across the lot while your land has no water and no sun and leave you stranded. I'm going to be your co-conspirator. And I think what he did then, and as a storyteller, the value of telling his story is he can continue to, to work his magic was to show white Christian America, was to ask them a big question about, you know, how much do you have a fire in your heart for justice? Do you really believe in equality? Is your identity to your political party bigger than your identity as a Christian? You you, you know, and those are some profound questions to ask people And, and it's, I think it's part of why McBride really chose this subject matter. It's a calling card you know, what John Brown provided, you know, he woke up Ralph Waldo Emerson, right? He woke up Walt Whitman. He woke up Henry David Thoreau. Those guys were on the verge of being woke, but they made him do something about rather than just kind of saying, Hey, I don't Mm -hmm. think it's very nice what you're doing. Like, no, we're going to stop it. You know, and it's a, as a storyteller, you know, I mean, in a way we live, you know, we're doing this podcast and everybody's zooming and we live in this World of technology, but really, we're all, all, you guys are storytellers. What do we? What's the subject matter we're going to talk about? It's an oral history how we communicate what's important to each other, and I think McBride really picked this subject matter because it's a story that was getting washed away—the story of John Brown and how the Civil War started. Because it it does provide a, f- a face of a white America that is something we can be proud of. But and why not give people a lane to run in?
0: But I also think, and this probably speaks to the brilliance of McBride's lens, but also the work of you and your collaborators, which is that the camera goes to the faces of the formerly enslaved men who are with him. It goes to their rolling eyes. You know what I mean? It it does oh, yeah. not hide from the fact that Brown can be outrageous. And, you know, the the central conceit running through the whole story is that for all of his certainty, he doesn't Unless I mean, I guess the, the end complicates it a little bit, but he doesn't seem to even notice that the young girl he's rescued is actually a boy.
3: Is in fact a boy. And that's just showing white hypocrisy, right? I mean, you know, I think when the story begins, Onion sees me as an all white dude. That's who I am. I'm not a person with a love life or a family or faith, or I'm just an old white dude. And I see him as, as as a tool to raise money for my cause. I don't see a human being. I don't even know if he's a boy or a girl. And my And it it's showing human folly, that you can say all the right things and be doing absolutely the wrong thing. Or do, you know, it's human being, we're all so confusing. And I think it's a way that McBride kind of gets rid of the pretentious, important quality of the story is to say, even though John Brown was doing a lot of the right things in a lot of the ways, you know, he was wasn't woke by today's standards.
1: Oh yeah. To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details.
2: This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise. But if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at vioricom Simmons. Once again, vuor slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness.
1: You know, I was wondering you're somebody who's obviously an active participant in a lot of the films and and now TV that you work in but when you first read McBride how f- quickly did you go from being a reader to being a writer how how quickly did you go from starting to s- just sort of enjoy the 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 text to oh I can tell this story in a way
3: It's funny because if when you know, if I really think about like if I don't give you a pat answer it was really mysterious. Um, I read the book because a cinematographer on Mag 7 was watching me and he said, you know, you should play John Brown. And I was like, what makes you say that? And he, he showed me this book. And so I kind of, I must have, in some of the back of my mind, read the book thinking that maybe I could play the part. Sure. The funny thing is, is that as I read it, I completely forgot about that. I laughed so hard at the book. I, I loved it so much. And I also... To be honest with you, I just didn't think I was old enough to play it. You know, you I, I I've been acting since as a kid. I don't see myself as old man John Brown, right? Yeah. You know, I remember when I finished it, I, I gave it to my wife and and she was like, "You know, this has to We had that feeling that you get in your chest that you just want to share the book with everybody." Mm-hmm. And she, and I said, "You know, she, could this be a movie?" And and it was her idea to say, "No, this could be a series." I mean, you wouldn't want to What would be the right two hours of The Good Lord Bird? You'd ruin it if you lost its epic quality. And I remember at first thinking that maybe I would play Owen and see if Jeff Bridges wanted to play John Brown or Robert Duvall. Like, that's kind of how I was thinking. And then slowly. I started. There's an old expression in actors, you know, that you got to play King Lear 10 years when you're too young for it, when your knees are still good. Yeah. You know, like something, well, actually, you know what? This guy's got to ride a lot of horses and get in a lot of gunfights. Maybe I maybe I am. And shit, damn it, my beard has gone gray. You know, I mean, damn it, when did this happen? And... Uh,
0: I mean, Duvall's on a horse right now. He would have done
3: it. Just he would have done right? it. He would have, let's face it, he would have kicked ass. Um, but I, I, it, it was an evolution, you know, over a period of months. And I met with McBride and I had that feeling you get where you're like, I want to do whatever I need to do to spend more time in a room with this guy. Cause this is one of the most interesting minds I've ever come across. And, and the project just started developing, you know, and, and the idea of adapting it became, it was weird. I was, I was doing first reformed around the same time. And I don't know how well, you know, that movie, but, there's a certain spiritual kinship to john mm-hmm. brown and reverend toler and and i started seeing a connection between people fighting for the environment now and what you know how john brown was called a terrorist and environmental activists are often called terrorists now and and, and it's it just depends on which way history slides whether you're revered or end up in jail and hung right yeah well,
0: there's also a commonality that I didn't even think about until you said this. But if you go to some of your earlier, more iconic roles, like in um, in the Before series or in Reality Bites, there's a confidence in those guys, too. But it's the confidence of a much younger person. And it's very interesting to see how you've chosen to play or had the opportunity to play that committed, dedicated <laughs> self-confidence across your own life and in your own career.
3: Yeah, you know... Confidence is a strange thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, as we started this conversation, I don't know, it was before we were on air, I think, but talking about sports. And one of the things what I find so magical about sports is you just watch human beings and this fragile thing called confidence, every one of those, you know, whether you're watching tennis players, men or women, soccer, football, basketball, the difference between who wins and who doesn't, they're all great players but you watch somebody lose their confidence or you watch somebody gain their confidence. And when we're, when we're acting with confidence, uh, well we can, you can be overconfident. I mean, it's such a weird balance, right? But I do, I'm, I find confidence such a mysterious thing because for example, when we talk about people naysaying you at the craft service table or when <laughs> You have to believe in yourself so much as a performer to make an ass out of yourself the way that you need to. You know, I mean, one of the things that I think makes Denzel so special is that despite being this icon of this great actor, this great American actor for 30 years, he's often doing something that might not work. You know, he's often taking a chance and it's taking that chance that keeps him growing and and keeps his confidence alive and you just you have to be confident enough to fail you know to go to take the big swing
0: and i i I, sorry i'm to step on chris here but you mentioned sports and (laughs) while i was preparing for the podcast i was thinking about your career and all the great roles i've enjoyed you in and sort of you chris and i also are big fans of your career as a as like a cv because we're we're talking about the choices you make and love seeing the surprises that come up and and it occurred to me there's that sports cliche of like letting the game come to you. And that's what mm. it feels like you have done from the outside in your career. So I Googled that. Does anyone get credit for that phrase? So I Googled it. And the first hit is you quoting <laughs> Lionel Messi mm-hmm. about that quote, which was just, first of all, incredible. But I, I, I do wonder, is that something that we from the outside can say about you in your career? Because earlier when we were speaking, you were talking about, you know, this, this financial choices, what am I going to do in my 40s? But from our perspective and something that we love to talk about, is that it seems like from a very early age, which is when we encountered you on screen, you have been able to sort of let the game come to you in terms of the parts that are offered to you, the opportunities, the chances to take, when to push or when to pull back. It seems like a grand design, but maybe that's just easy for us to say.
3: Well, I appreciate you saying that. (laughs) I I don't know. One of the things I love about watching Messi is how patient he is. And I think that one of the things that I heard somebody say when I was young, and, and, and I, I really took it to heart, which is there's no such thing as a once in a lifetime opportunity. And often people make you think that there is, that you've got to grab it now. You've got to grab it now. And or, or it's that opportunity will never come back. And The truth is that if you're really good at what you do, there will be another opportunity. So if you keep your focus, on your own development, opportunities will come. And one of the dangers that I think I saw happen to a lot of young actors around me is they kind of grabbed the low hanging fruit whenever they could and they wanted to maximize every opportunity. And I've said this before and I, I wish that I wouldn't say it so much, but I, because it's, I don't, it's time to move on, but I think River's death had a big impact on me, you know, about what what you want a long life to look like. And people sometimes ask, you know, why do you write, or why do you make a documentary, or why are you making a graphic novel? Or, part of that is keeping myself busy to let the game come to me. I, I I love acting. Everything I've done as a person, the the fulcrum of my life is is performance, is acting, and but I try to create balance and patience by engaging in life as a human being, you know, as as, as a person, and and I've been astounded that there, you know, I it's that weird thing, you know, what the what's the branch Ricky line that you know luck is a residue of design, or there's other Paul Newman's often credited with saying luck is an art. Uh, is from Color of Money. I yes, think, from the
1: opening monologue of Color of Money. I think yeah, Scorsese and, says it in the beginning, right? Yeah, it's incredible.
3: Yeah. And, and I think I think Scorsese got that from Newman. You I wouldn't know? be surprised, and, yeah. And and uh and in a lot of ways, what Newman would often say is that, you know, why he liked that character is he sees himself as a hustler. You know, and and you got to sometimes go slow to go fast and you got to play above your game when you're required. Sometimes you got to play below your game and let everybody run by for a second. You know, you see, that's what I love about Messi. Like, what's he doing? Oh, he's catching his breath and he's going to blow them all away in five (laughs) seconds. And it's it's like and the, the other team falls for it every time, you know, and I, uh, I appreciate you guys saying that, uh, I've found that if you listen really carefully to your own life, some good things can happen, you know? And maybe that is another way of saying you'll be able to handle bad things happening because they're gonna happen too, you know? Uh, and and a lot of how we, it's how we handle the negatives and how we handle the positive, you know, that's that's what makes up a, a CV, so to speak, the long game. I mean. <laughs>
1: Even just the 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 microcosm of the stuff you've worked on with with Jason Blum, for instance, where it's like you've done these thrillers and horror films with him. You've done a, a movie that I, uh, our producer Kaya and I saw at South by called Adopt a Highway that I wish more people had gotten a chance to check out that yep. Logan Marshall Green directed. And now you worked on it on a uh, bird with him. I was curious what. Because now, you, you know, you're also producing your own work. You're, you know, you're, you're kind of shepherding your own work here. What, when you talk to somebody like Jason, what advice does he, does he give you about kind of being a little bit in more of a supervisory role over the way things come to screen?
3: Well, Jason's a fascinating human being. I mean, uh, he's a true original. We met, you know, we met, he was the, I started a theater company and I was the artistic director and he was a producing director. He was right out of college, and he was the first. You know, we—I'd be running around at parties or different things. You know, Dead Poet Society had already come out, and so I would get invited to different events and things. And he was the only young person I ever met who said, "Hello, I want to be a producer." (laughs) Most people come to producing because a couple other things didn't work out, you know, and they're playing it that way. He saw an avenue for himself and he really likes making things happen for other people. He's kind of a client, like he's a great general manager, so to speak. Uh, we, you know, he produced my Hamlet when we were young, you know, I mean, we did uh We've also done TIE West Western, you know, in a valley yeah. of violence in a lot of ways. I see the purge often gets named as a, as a horror film, but really it's science fiction, you know, it's violent science fiction. It's, and it's a, you know, I'm proud of that movie about what it's saying sociopolitically. You know, it's a powerful piece about imagine in the future when rich people don't care at all about. Poor people. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and um, it's, it's it, he's. I've learned a lot from him because he looks at the world as a producer. And I look at it as a storyteller. You know, mm-hmm. I, I get so passionate about things and, and he's often often kind of reminding me like, I'm glad you're passionate about that, but nobody else in the world cares about that. How are you going to, how is your passion going to be infectious to the audience? Do you know, how are they going to see what's interesting about it? And I think our friendship and meeting ground lies in, a, a, we we both have a large range of interests. Y- you know, uh, you know he, he was working, you know, in the 90s, everybody was about, making hip indie movies and wanted to win the grand prize at Sundance or get an Oscar nomination. And, and, and Blum, I remember saying this to me, he said, what if you took off from all your thinking? What if you said, I don't want to win a prize at a film festival and I don't want to uh, win an Oscar. What if you said like, I'm not using any of these fake carrots. What if you actually wanted to give people stories that they wanted to see? And that's the genius of Blumhouse, you know, and and he's he's used this engine to through horror movies to talk about social justice. You know, Get Out is a flat out brilliant film. Right. Mm -hmm. It's it's everything a genre movie ever dreamed of being because it functions as a genre movie and it functions as a socio political statement. Sure. You know, it's unbelievable. And Blum is I've just I've just learned a lot from him by being near him, you know, Uh, and and seeing he has a tremendous joy. And that's what a lot of what you meet uh, from a lot of when people get older and they lose their joy, that's that's when the curiosity leaves. Yeah. You no, know? and that's when the spontaneity leaves. And Blum just I don't know. I always get the feeling like he wasn't invited to the party and he's crashing it. You know, <laughs> he's just so he's glad to be there, but he doesn't take being there that seriously. So he's a little more playful and a, uh, uh, a little less um, motivated by the wrong things.
0: I love that you mentioned theater because I make a habit on this podcast of humble bragging that I saw the the full day marathon of Coast of Utopia at Lincoln Center.
1: You got to know that this has come up half a dozen times in the last year that Andy feels the need to dunk on me. But
0: but then Chris told me that the Blumhouse publicist has heard me say this and said, we'll get you, Ethan, (laughs) because you're a true (laughs) hawkhead. You were at Lincoln Center for 10 hours in 2005 or whatever.
3: That's the only, do you remember at the, Look, first of all, no bullshit. I mean, that that's the single, those performances are the single greatest days of my life as an actor. Wow. I mean, we put nine months of rehearsal into being able to deliver that show. You know, you, you came, you arrived at uh, 11 a.m. and you left at 11 p.m. Mm-hmm. And we told you the story of a generation of 19th century Russian radicals. And Stoppard is just a magnificent storyteller. I learned so much doing that. And I remember that's the only time in my life at the Curtain Call, we applauded you. Remember that? (laughs) Yeah, I I I
0: I had protein bars. You know, you got to stay upright.
3: I mean, how the hell you paid attention? I mean.
0: (laughs) I I went home and started reading Turgenev for
3: fun. I mean, (laughs) that is. Well, that's, that's the genius of Tom Stoppard. You know, I remember, Tom, there was a great moment where you really see what somebody's character is made of in rehearsal. The New York Times and the Arts Page did a suggested reading mm-hmm. for, for viewing of, of Coast of Utopia. And Tom got so angry. He's like, "Other these people have jobs. they have like, It's my job to read that. You don't need to read anything. Just come to see them. My job is as an entertainer. My job is I'm... I read it, trust me, I'll give it to you and I'll give it to you in a way, you don't have to do homework before you come see my play. And the, seeing him being so upset about it was so moving.
0: I love that. And so I I wanted to use the opportunity to once again, humble brag that I was there for that as a <laughs> jumping off point because of the choice that you made to be a part of that and how meaningful it was to you to ask you a question that I feel like doesn't get asked a lot of actors and maybe with good reason because maybe on some level it might be offensive, but I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it out here. Which is to say, I was talking to a friend who is an actor, I will not name him, and I was saying that you were coming on the podcast, and he's like, he's always good, but now he's great. And what I realized we never really have the opportunity to talk to actors about is how they feel about improving and getting better as a craft, you know, which is not, I don't bring that up to say that there were movies where you were bad in, but it does seem to make, it does suggest that even the way you speak about acting and your love for it and what you learned from Tom Stoppard, that every stop on this journey has contributed and has been additive. And I wonder if you think of yourself as a better actor now and if there are inflection points along that journey.
3: Well, definitely. I mean, it, it's actors don't want to talk about that because as soon as you start talking about it, it involves you saying that you've improved, which sounds egotistical or something you know, right. it's, it's a hard mm-hmm. thing to discuss, especially in the arts. You know, one of the things I'm, I'm jealous about, the sports analogy is that if you play point guard, you're either getting more assists or less assists. You're either winning more games or you're losing more games. There's a math to it. And there's no math to my life as an actor, meaning I've gotten terrible reviews for projects that were absolutely essential to my development as a performer, you know? And that nobody else is in charge of that. There's no equation, this is an argument Jason and I often have, I'll send him a script and he'll say, I'll never make a dime off that. Nobody wants to see that. And I'll think, but it's so important that it get done you know, that it, 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 this just has to exist. I want to believe in a planet earth where this has a home. You know, you mentioned adopt a highway. It's a tiny little gentle film. It's a, it's like a Dennis Johnson short story or something. Yeah. But I want to believe in a world where a movie like that can get made, you know, and have I improved if I didn't believe that I'd be dead, you know, it I doesn't mean it's, I, I, I'm probably not the right person to sit in judgment of how my work is improved or not. I can tell you there's some pivotal moments working with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Sidney Lamette on Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. I'm touching in Sidney Lumet, I'm, I'm touching live television. I'm, I mean, I'm touching yeah, the actor's studio. I'm touching Lee Strasberg and and Pacino and and Marlon Brando. I mean, this is, I was directed by a man who directed Marlon Brando in a Tennessee Williams piece, you you know, and I'm doing it with the peer who was one of the most ferocious uh, artists I've ever met. I mean, Philip did not suffer fools lightly. I mean, he was tough to work with in a thrilling way. There's such laziness going on, you know, about people caring about their followers or their protein shakes, whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm not hearing judgment about it all. I drank my share of protein shakes. <laughs> I,
0: just to get through that marathon <laughs> utopia. Yeah, you know, no, yeah. yeah. I know, got that 10-hour I, play. I'm, I'm
3: not casting any judgment. I'm just saying that it's very rare that you meet people who talk about acting the way that I read that Kazan talked about acting and in these, these people that influenced the generation before me. And so like, I, when I think about my nine months in a rehearsal room with Jack O'Brien and Tom Stoppard, I know I changed. I knew I grew, I know I grew. I did Hurley Burley in this little theater for six months or something with Bobby Cannavale and- Josh Hamilton in that? Josh Hamilton, yeah, that's right. And 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 Chris, we He was in Coast
0: of Utopia too. <laughs> he just was in FYI. Coast of, we
3: were roommates in Coast of Utopia. Dress and roommates in in Hurley Burley. we you know we, he did Lie of the Mind with me. There are these moments working with Denzel. This a uh, before and after moment for me. You don't unsee when you work before with before
0: you got wet and after you got wet.
3: That's That'd right. Be, <laughs> yeah, I'd never smoked PCP before, and now I smoke <laughs> it every day. Uh, no, uh, you when you watch. Greatness up close, then you you can't unsee that. you, you know you it, and there's tiny little details in the way that he lives his life and plays his game and works his art and that it that is is very exciting to see. Um, you know, my friendship with Richard Linkletter. I mean I, I I've had some amazing experiences, you know, I remember Rick came to New York. My son was just born. He came to visit my son. He said, you know, I had this idea that we shoot a movie like a short film once a year for like 12 years. And we do the, it'll start when he's six and end when he's 18. And, and, and I realized I was being asked to use time as clay. And I don't know that any actor's ever been asked to do that. Yeah. Ever, you know, and you take that, that leap. And it has an impact on you, you know, I mean, it, it, it changes you. And so over the years I've had, these experiences doing before midnight, you know, there's a scene in before midnight. It's the last people I read about. It's often called the fight scene, but you know, it started as a love scene. It's Julie and I are on a date night and we're supposed to start kissing and it all goes wrong. And it's a 30 page scene that happens in one room and it devolves. And I remember the, the, the camera operator just getting so upset. He just didn't want to see Jesse and Celine fight. You know, the, he was our age and my, my age and, and he wanted to believe in this perfect love. And he knew that before midnight was going to say, well, it wasn't about romantic idealism anymore. And I don't know exactly why, but I came out of that scene, a different actor. Wow. You, you know, it, it's, it, it, you, you swim in certain waters and it just changes the way you swim. Right. And, and so what I'm doing oftentimes is hunting for an experience that's gonna pummel me, so to speak. I mean, John Brown used. I mean, you know, Costa Utopia is a funny example because most people haven't seen it, so they don't know Chris. that I, <laughs> I learned a lot. Michael Bakunin was my warm-up act to John Brown. Y- y- wow. You know, it was like uh, there's. I started discovering a kind of inner Falstaff that could could you know, that 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 could take shape in other characters. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question about improving or not, but I know that I want to improve. I know that I see, you know, we mentioned Jeff Bridges or Robert Duvall or Gene Hackman or Tommy Lee Jones or, you know, Sidney Poitier or people that really developed over a lifetime and they develop a kind of uh, grace to what they're doing and it's kind of what you guys said. It starts not being about the part. And it starts to be about your evolution as a performer. And and that that's kind of what I'm interested in, is not just the part, but the connection between the parts and how each thing can push me to grow up.
1: So I guess that's a good segue to ask you a little bit about Moon Knight, if that's cool with you. Because I think this is something that we're on our pod, Andy and I talk quite a bit about you know, um, both our love of and fear of the rise of these sort of mega franchise intellectual property behemoths. And we'll be like, boy, like the kid in us and even the, the adult in us really adores the fact that we are getting all these stories. But there is also like, you know, we worry a little bit about the Adopt-a-Highways the out there. You know what I mean? Like about about the, the availability of stuff like that. And I think we're raised by like this kind of 90s ethos of like, I'm not selling out, but like a little bit of one for me, one for them. And I was it's curious it. about like, whether you had any of that trepidation going into something like Moon Knight.
3: Well, look, I feel like it started right. We've heard lots of people talk about this. It started when I was a kid, when Jaws came out, right? Before Jaws, you know, Butch Cassidy and Sundance kid was a huge hit by today's standards. That's a drama. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, there's some gunfights and stuff, in the, but the leads get killed in the end. Hate for the spoiler alert, but it's, that's a, it's a comedy drama. West, I mean, it's a very simple movie, not a big budget, but it was a big hit movie. Redford and Newman followed it up with The Sting, another comedy that was a big hit. And we've slowly watched these event movies, like you say, these intellectual properties I have no problem with them as movies, you know, whether we're talking about Poseidon Adventure or Towering Inferno, or we're talking about Spider-Man, you know, it's like, it's part of a legacy of how much shit can we blow up, (laughs) you you know? and, and, And what's the danger for me as, as now an elder statesman of my profession, the danger is it gets harder to watch Cries and Whispers. It doesn't get easier. You, you're you conditioning audiences to have all the work done for them and you're just robbing them of their own creativity. I mean, the, the, the genius of the, the great films of the past is often that they ask a lot of the audience and, you know, you know, to use an obvious example, Citizen Kane asks a lot of the viewer. Yes, it's yeah. fun. It's entertaining as hell. It, it's it, you know, working with Paul Schrader, I had a big wake-up call about this. You know, he really wants you to participate. He's inviting you to watch this movie. You don't, not just anybody. You, you're allowed to have your own reaction to the film. He is not telling you what moment you're supposed to cry at. He doesn't even tell you it's definitively about this or it's definitively about that. He's inviting you in to have your own discerning mind. And it gets harder and harder, I think, for young people. I mean, look, it, it, now I watch movies with my kids and if you, they, the scroll comes up on the bottom of the screen about what's coming up next, it's like <laughs> it, 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 there's so much engagement to our ADD. And it, it's I'm, I remember just wanting to ball watching WALL-E. You remember that movie? Yeah. And and watching these people with their little fat fingers and their little roller balls, just pressing play, play, play. You know, there's an article came out yesterday where Scorsese is taking us all to task. Yeah. And you know, he's brilliant. He's really brilliant. We have to be careful what we celebrate as a culture, because if we make something important, if we say One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is important, people will watch it if we talk about it. If we say blowing up all these buildings is the thing you have to see, that's what everybody's gonna see. And it's a hell of a lot easier to watch something with the rock and roll playing. And it, you don't wanna sound like the grandma librarian, um, but Scorsese has a real point about what we're asking of ourselves as a culture you know, I'm I'm fascinated by how does a book like Ulysses get published? It's not just that James Joyce is a genius, it's that culture cared about pushing language forward and pushing ideas forward. And there was a high bar of what the grown ups in society wanted, you know. Whether you know, if you make social justice the conversation, people start caring about it. And if you let it recede, it's easier for everybody to, to not think about things that hurt, right? Yeah.
0: Well, I, I should say, I think the Ulysses underlying IP is available for the expanded <laughs> Joyce universe. You start with a portrait of the artist as a young man, yeah. you know, and then you show him That's as an older man. That's
1: Yeah, it's sort of um, a new hope.
0: But, I, but I, as the person who has to straddle this divide, because again, another not even humble brag, brag, I have been the person who have had to explain Coast of Utopia and revolutionary Russian literary theorists to Chris, but also Moon Knight to Chris, because <laughs> yeah. of how I was brought up. You know, it, the idea of you and Oscar Isaac being in a TV show,
1: we're Rules. excited. Yeah, like we're definitely, excited about this. definitely very <laughs> but, excited for but it. But
0: I wonder, just creatively, because all the choices you make, I, clearly, you know, there's there's creative thinking about it. And like, what what can you learn from this experience? What specifically about this project was made it the one? Because without getting into details, I'm sure that there have been expanded universes that have reached out for your participation in the past.
3: Well, it's where I'm at as an actor, um, a lot of it, to be honest, I love the fact that Moon Knight is a lesser known story and allows more creative freedom. The director is Mohamed Daib, uh, and he's uh, a brilliant guy. I've seen a couple of his movies and wanted to work with him anyway. Uh, I had had a meeting with him about another project of his own, uh, and a lot of it is Oscar to me. To be honest with you, I find him to be a very exciting player in my field. Uh, I like what he's doing with his life. He reminds me of the actors when I first arrived at New York that I looked up to. I mean, Oscar's younger than me, and I i like the way he carries himself, and I like the way he thinks. And in general, good things happen when you're in the room with people that you like the way they think, right? Uh Mohammed's going to do a good job. He's a serious person. I don't know if you guys have seen his films, but he's a serious artist. And you have to speak to your time, Mm -hmm. right? You know, you can't pretend you don't live in the time period that you live in. You have to try to make your time period better. You know, it's like, and uh, there's a great, I I, I don't know if this makes sense or not, but forgive the analogy if it's a little high (laughs) self-aggrandizing, or but I, there's a story about St. Francis I love, which is that St. Francis came to the Pope and he wanted to start his own order. And the Pope wasn't sure whether he was a heretic or not. And he said, I'll give you your own order, but you have to do it with both feet standing in the church. Keep your feet. You can do whatever you want. If you change it from within, don't change it from outside. Yeah. And it was, I remember reading that story and thinking, wow, that's really beautiful. You can change things from within. You don't have to just try to break things, you know? Um, And so I'm trying to live in my time and I'm trying to do good work inside the time, you know, with the time that I'm given. Right. And uh, there's a place for Adopt a highway, and there's a place for good Lord Bird, and you know, there's a place for a good horror movie. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's what i there's not there's not a right or wrong to this world. I mean, not, not always. I mean, there's, there's definitely things that are wrong, is definitely, you know what I mean, but there's, no, of course, yeah, in the world of art, in the world of creativity, there's a great uh, Cassavetti's line. It's like, I don't give a shit what a movie is, as long as the people making it put some thought into it. If they put some thought into it, they're my friend. And I I used to have that quote above my desk because when I was a kid, you know, I used to struggle so much with what movie should I do? What movie shouldn't I do? And then you start loosening up the the reins a little bit and go, you know what? You're going to make good decisions. You're going to make bad decisions. But the one thing you're definitely in control of is what kind of thought you put into what you're doing.
0: We love hearing it and it's such a pleasure that we've given us all this time to talk about this because as we said, we are big fans of your work for a very long time, but also you are kind of and Oscar Isaac is a little bit like this too, but an icon of this podcast. Yeah, um, Probably because throughout all these choices you're making, we can tell that you are having fun and you are creatively engaged by them. And it allows for the highs like John Brown and Good Lord Bird and whatever else is to come. It's, it's meaningful for us. So thank you so much.
3: Yeah, man. Thank well, you, you know so much what? for let's, joining let's, us. Let's try to have Oscar on when Moon Knight comes out. The two of us can come on together. And then we'll be legally allowed to talk about it. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. right now I've signed non, I can't say anything besides names and the your dates. You're so
0: <laughs> safe. They'll, they'll like a, a fax will go to Kevin Feige and they'll say, Hawks <laughs> talking again. What did he talk about? And they'll say, James Joyce, St. Francis of Assisi and
3: Cassavetes. Coast of Utopia. That's right. Bakunin. Like,
0: Feige's got bigger fish to fry. You're fine.
3: He's got bigger problems than me. Yeah. <laughs> Thank sure. you so
1: much for coming on, man. It's been a blast. Hey,
3: the best, you guys. Thanks for having me. Take, Take care. care. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much to Ethan Hawke. Check out Good Lord Bird if you haven't already. Revisit it if you have. Andy and I will be back on Monday talking WandaVision and everything else.
2: This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes as a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race. A young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom and the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm.